Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. If I've not met you yet, my name is Bijan. I'm the pastor for our church. And what a privilege for us today to be part of such a fun and warm carol service. Would you all please join me in thanking our volunteers, our music team, everyone who made this happen? Every Sunday as we gather, we have a team of people who are working together, but this Sunday especially so. So if you were here early or if you're staying late, thank you so much for helping make today happen. We really appreciate it. Let me also say, if you're new, if you're visiting, we're really glad to have you here. In the midst of the fun and the festivity, we'd love to get to know you and answer any questions you may have about faith or about the church. So really warm welcome if you're visiting. Now, today, my privilege is to try to answer the question, what on earth are we doing here? I mean, doesn't it strike you as just a tiny bit odd that here in the middle of central London, we're singing songs about a baby who was born nearly 2,000 years ago? I mean, that's just a little bit strange, if we're honest. And yet, not just us, but churches throughout our city, Churches throughout our world have been and will continue to say glory to a newborn king. A baby that was born in a tiny obscure town in a remote part of the world so many years ago. And the question is why? Why are we here? Why do Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? And there's really no better place in the Bible to go to for an answer than the passage that Marianne just read, John chapter 1. Because here in these verses, we don't have the events of Christmas, the shepherds and the angels. We have the heart or the theology of Christmas. What was happening when Jesus was born? And so you have the passage there in English in your brochure for today's service. would encourage you to have that handy As we look at this text to see what is the heart of Christmas, what's it all about? Three things that I want to show you briefly. First, we're going to take a look at the doctrine of Christmas. Then second, the hope of Christmas. And then finally, the glory of Christmas. And don't worry, the service today, I know it's a longer service. My sermon will be shorter. You can almost think of it as a homily instead of a sermon. Sometimes people say, what's the difference between a homily and a sermon? The answer is about 20 minutes. So that's what we have today. The doctrine of Christmas, the hope of Christmas, and the glory of Christmas here in John chapter 1. First, the doctrine of Christmas. Look with me if you would at verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That single sentence is incredibly rich and it's dense with meaning. Let me just call your attention to the fact that first, John the author says, the Word, or in Greek, that's logos, the logos became flesh. And then it says, made his dwelling among us. And that Greek word for made his dwelling, it literally means to pitch a tent. Or it could also be translated tabernacled. So let me read it to you again, giving you that sense. The logos became flesh and pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. 
You say, why is that significant? Because when John, the author, was writing this gospel, there were two predominant worldviews that he was writing to. On one hand, there was the worldview of the ancient Greek philosophy. And that worldview was very interested in the logos. We talked about this here at church a few weeks ago. If you were here, you may remember. But as a reminder for all of us, the logos was the heart of ultimate reality. And art and philosophy and science and literature was all about trying to understand who or what or where is the logos, the force, the power that holds the universe together. Everyone knew that there was a logos, but no one knew who the logos was. You could say that the logos was a kind of impersonal force in the universe. So that's the Greek worldview. You also have, at the time John is writing, another worldview. You could call this a religious worldview. The worldview of the Old Testament, of the Bible. And that worldview says, yes, we know there's a God out there. We know he's a God that you can know. But he's a God that's distant. He's so glorious. He's so holy that the only way you can get into his presence is through sacrifices and rituals. You have to obey, you have to keep all the rules, and you have to come to him through a tabernacle. That's why in the Old Testament of the Bible, when God was making his presence known in his people's lives, it always came to the people in the form of a tabernacle, or later a temple. That was the place that you would go to if you wanted to encounter the glory of God. You couldn't just walk up to his presence, you needed to come in a mediated way. So that's what you have, these two ancient worldviews. You have on one hand, the logos, the force out there that's impersonal. And the religious or the Old Testament worldview that says, yeah, we know there's a God, but he's distant. He's inaccessible. He's hard to get to. Now, many people, by the way, in our city think of God like that too. Have you ever heard someone say, maybe you feel this way yourself, I'm spiritual. You know, I'm not really religious. I don't really get into the Bible, but I'm spiritual. I want to connect my life to a higher power. Lots of that in our city. Trying to connect to the divine, to something beyond yourself. And on the other hand, we have lots of people, many even in churches just like this one, who would say, oh yeah, I know God's out there. And I'm trying to earn my way into his presence. I'm trying to keep the rules and be a really good person so that he accepts me. Those ancient worldviews are actually very modern. And can you see why Christmas then is such good news? Because keeping those worldviews in mind, let's read again verse 14. The Logos became a human being and he pitched his tent among us. This is the doctrine of Christmas, that on one hand, ultimate reality, logos, is a person, and it's a person that you can know, a person that you can have a relationship with. And second, this God that can be known didn't give you a map and say, if you want to find me, here's how you can get there, but he actually says, I'm God who's come to find you. I am the one who's made his dwelling among you. I've pitched my tent in your presence. 
So I am God who's come to find you. In other words, to put it in a single sentence, the doctrine of Christmas, God is personal and approachable. And this is why Christmas changed the world. Because now we have a God who we can know because he's come to find and save and rescue us. That's the God that we celebrate who was born in Bethlehem. A God that's personal and approachable. But here's the next question. Why did he come? Why was Jesus born? Why did God become man? And that leads us to the hope of Christmas. Glance with me, if you would, at verse 5 of your passage. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's no accident that even in our room today, whenever we get to Christmas time, you just see a lot more lights everywhere. And you know that we celebrate Christmas during the darkest time of the year. And so we put up extra lights. Why? It's not just tradition. It's actually carrying the most significant meaning of Christmas. That light has come into the darkness. And the light that John is talking about is none other than Jesus himself. He is, verse 9, the true or the genuine light that has burst into our dark world. And so, and you could call this the sort of pastoral application of the sermon today. Here's what I want you to sink your teeth into. Here's what I want you to wrestle with during this Christmas season. Christmas is about light shining in the darkness. And that means on one hand, Christmas is about acknowledging that our world can be, and maybe your world is right now, very dark. Darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for all that is broken, all that is evil, all that is void of God. And it's not that hard to see that in our world, there's a lot of darkness. There's darkness in our own hearts, the shame we carry, the regret, the things that we keep doing even though we don't want to and are kind of ashamed of. There's darkness around us. There's relationships that are broken. There's persons that we've lost. There's darkness in our world. There's real darkness. And Christmas starts with acknowledging that's out there. We don't have to put our heads in the sand. We don't have to pretend. We can say this is a dark and a broken world. If it weren't, Jesus would not have needed to come. So on one hand, there's real darkness. But on the other hand, the hope of Christmas is that the darkness will not overcome. The darkness doesn't win. The light wins. And you know, just knowing that, I realize that as I say that today, that can sound like cold comfort. Stuff that preachers say when you have a carol service. The light wins. But friends, hear me. If you believe that, if you can sink your heart into the truth that light is going to outlast the darkness, that will fill you with courage to face whatever darkness is waiting for you tomorrow. It fills you with hope. There's a spot in Lord of the Rings where two of the main characters are in the land of darkness and they're on a perilous journey. And this journey matters greatly. If they succeed, the world is saved. If they fail, everyone is doomed. And so these two characters, Frodo and Sam, are journeying literally in the land of shadow and the land of darkness. And one of the characters, Frodo, says to Sam, I can't do this anymore. The darkness is overwhelming him. He's too burdened. He's too weary. He doesn't want to continue. And so Sam, who I think is the real hero, by the way, of the Lord of the Rings, 
Sam says to Frodo, after he says, I can't do it. Sam replies and he says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in all the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even the darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out all the clearer. And then a little bit later, the two of them, as they're journeying literally through this land of darkness, the two of them take a rest. And Sam, who can't sleep, looks up into the dark sky. And above that dark sky, he sees a light shining. It's a star far, far away. And the text of the story says this. There, peeping among the clouds above the dark, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for just a little while. And the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out from the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end it was darkness that was only a small and passing thing. And there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And you say, well, that's just a nice story. I mean, Lord of the Rings is great. But do you know why passages like that move you? Is because you know deep down that they point to a true story. Where the real light has broken into the darkness. And we know that in the midst of whatever darkness we carry, there is a high beauty and a light that shines that's going to win. And believing that today, it can fill you with courage. It can give you real hope in the midst of a dark and a broken world. So Christmas calls you to be honest about the darkness we face and confident that light has come and light will win. You say, Bijan, how do you know that? It's a nice sentiment, but how do you know? Because finally, we know the glory of Christmas, or what you might call the surprising glory of Christmas. Come back with me to verse 14. We, John says, have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son who came from the Father. John says we've seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And that word glory as you read about it in the Gospel of John, what we learn is it's a surprising glory. Because this glory doesn't look like splendor and brilliance and success. The glory that we see in Jesus Christ is the glory of the cross. It's the glory of Jesus dying for your sin. It's the glory of Jesus dying in place of his enemies. In other words, the glory of God as revealed in Jesus is a surprising glory. It's a hidden glory. It's a glory that says we win by losing. The least shall be the greatest. Jesus defeats darkness by being plunged into it. That's the glory that we see in Jesus. That's the glory we celebrate at Christmas. And so here's my question for you today. 
Have you seen the glory of Jesus? Not just do you see it, but have you trusted in it? Are you resting in it? Has your life been changed by it? The most transformative thing of all that can happen to a human being is for you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And because God became man in Christ, we can know that glory today. And so that's my prayer for us as we sing, as we have fun, that this won't be just a fun carol service, but that we would encounter the glory of God in the presence of Jesus. Let's pray for that now, even as we come to a time of response. Our God, we thank you so much for John chapter 1 and really the Christmas story, all that we're considering today. And we pray now as we continue on in our service and as we have a moment now to reflect and allow this to sink in. Lord, we pray that we would see the glory of God in Jesus. That we would have hope in the midst of our darkness as we come to a God who's personal and approachable. Make Jesus real to us today, we pray. For his glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.